0: Uh, it's good to be back. Uh, we're starting a new thing uh, the, uh, tonight. The, something that is, I'm really excited about. The name of the sermon tonight is God's Word, Genesis to Revelation. I really struggled with trying to figure out a, a, a name that will uh, really say exactly what is happening, but what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be going through the Hebrew Scriptures but I want, to, I want you to see how it's connected to the New Testament. We'll see that even tonight, especially about the Revelation, how it's connected, and, uh, and all of that. But uh, tonight, we will be starting on a trip through the Hebrew Scriptures. So that's going to go on for quite a while, and we've got a, a, a unique thing happening next week, and you'll see about it in a minute. The first, the first five books... In the Bible are called the Torah, the Torah. Now, most of you know this, but the early church had as their Bible uh, something called the Septuagint. The, uh, the Septuagint, it's a word that means 70. Uh, the Septuagint is normally, if you're reading a commentary, it'll go LXX. That's Roman numerals for 70. And it's said that there were 70 Alexandrian Jews who translated from the Hebrew into the Greek in the third century before Jesus. The Greek translation of the Old Testament was the Apostle Paul's Bible, as we can tell from his Greek quotes in his writings. So tonight, I'm doing a flyover of the Torah, and then... Uh, Michael Hale will be teaching us, not tonight, but will be teaching us the biblical worldview, which is very important, which includes the literal 24-hour days of creation in chapter 1 starting right at verse 1, along with Adam and Eve who are our ancestors, and we'll learn in detail the truth of creation versus evolution, And in our society today, evolution is just taken for granted. And so we're going to... You'll really have an answer to any question that somebody asks you. um, You're going to learn it over the next five weeks. So I hope you'll join me. I'll be in the front row with my pen in hand for the next five weeks. And Michael, who's an expert, to say the least, in all of this, and I'll introduce you to him next week. He's here tonight. He's among us all the time. And uh, he will... Uh, teach us with lots of, with video, with uh, great presentations, uh, all where we came from, how we got here, what's, uh, all of the ideas of worldview that we need to know clearly to understand the beginning scriptures, especially in the Book of Genesis, and much else that we'll see in the Bible. And then the following week after he does that, we'll start our journey through the Hebrew Scriptures at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And I'll be teaching that from then on. But I'm really excited about this. Believe me, I've looked at all his notes and everything. He sent them, and you're not going to be bored. You're going to be thrilled. And it would be a great opportunity to bring someone, especially that maybe thinks that evolution is true, uh, they'll find out in a very attractive way that uh, that's not the case. So, um, and as I said, we'll start then our journey through the Hebrew Scriptures at Genesis so that we can come to understand the message of the Bible and why we must work hard at more than just reading the Bible, but we must work hard at understanding what is written and why it is written and how it should impact our lives. Today, there's a definite movement away from any Old Testament teaching in evangelicalism in America. One particular well known pastor, I'm not going to use his name, but you can ask me later, but most of you know. But one particularly well known evangelical pastor with many churches, huge congregations, and many others connected to those churches, and I checked this out myself, it isn't that somebody told me this, uh, in writing his sermons talks about the need to uncouple ourselves from the Old Testament and just teach the New Testament. Now, this pastor has a huge influence, and as a result, it seems there are fewer and fewer churches teaching what the Bible actually says in the context of language and culture. And we need to have a biblical worldview. And after Mike's teachings and my exposition of especially the Torah... Uh, we'll be able to understand what God's purpose and message is for us today. You see, the raw truth is that without a knowledge of the Old Testament, the light of the New Testament becomes very dim. We need the writings of Moses and many others to fully understand the teachings in the New Testament. So I'm going to be teaching the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Bible. And in Greek, that word means... Five: Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And there was a time in history, in the history of the Old Testament scholarship, still appearing in liberal theology today, where there was some doubt that Moses wrote the Pentateuch, those first five books. It was based mostly on the idea that the Hebrew people were not literate. They had no written language. But archaeology has long since dispelled this myth, and we now know that they had written language and therefore would write down stories and and history for the coming ages to read and for us to understand. The liberal scholars say there were several authors uh, of the Pentateuch, and they arbitrarily named these seven authors. You remember their names, J, E, and P. That's the seven authors. Now, when I was in seminary, I pursued this uh, as a task to find out what it is they believe. But I found out in my studies that even those who, who taught this back when I was in seminary could not agree on what was written by Moses and what was written by J, E, or P, whoever they are. But for me, the greatest proof is in the New Testament where such as Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, the Apostle Paul, the writer of Hebrews, quoted Moses as the writer of the Torah. But the clearest and most convincing is Jesus. One day some Pharisees are really upset at him, and uh, mainly because he didn't keep the Sabbath the way they thought he should. And he says to them, these are the words of Jesus in John five forty six and 47, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, Jesus said. For Moses wrote about me. But since you do not believe what Moses wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? I think that's pretty definitive. In the third chapter of Exodus, we have the scene where Moses sees the burning bush and God speaks to him. Moses is then 80 years old and all that is written in Genesis and the beginning of Exodus is now in the past. We don't know exactly when Moses started writing, but there's little doubt these words come from his pen or quill or whatever uh, through the ministry of God's spirit in his life. Matter of fact, the New Testament tells us several places that it's God's spirit that moved Moses and all the writers of the books of the Bible. The first 11 chapters of Genesis especially contain the seed of everything else in the Bible. The book of Genesis begins with a picture of God's sovereignty in creation and then ends with the story of Joseph, that's my favorite story in the Old Testament, demonstrating God's sovereignty in the human family. So these first five books can be titled in several ways, and I've just titled them from my reading, and uh, uh, it'll give you an idea of what we're going to be learning as we go through them. Genesis could be entitled Creation and Fall. Exodus could be entitled The Sovereignty of God and Redemption by Delivering the Israelites from Captivity in Egypt. Leviticus could be named a book with relationship with God through blood sacrifice, a picture of the fulfillment of Jesus on the cross. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, it reads, in fact, according to the law of Moses, see the New Testament Hebrews, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood, with blood. For within without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And blood, of course, pictures death. In Leviticus, it's death of an animal, which became the death or the blood of a perfect human being, and his name is Jesus. The book of Numbers, we could call a picture of God's guidance and God's will and his care for us by name. I really like all the names in the Bible. When I read through the Bible, I don't skip over any names. I literally try to pronounce them the best I can, every one of them, because God put them there. The Apostle Paul has a lot of names in Romans uh, in chapter 16 of people that he knew. It's amazing how many people he knew. And God knows your name, and he knows my name, and we're going to learn a lot about that in the book of Numbers. The book of Deuteronomy is the law in detail, a picture of God's faithfulness. And so we have the Pentateuch, five books covering 2,500 years. Again, another way of looking at it, Genesis. Genesis is God's sovereignty in creation. In the beginning, God. If you just understand those three words if you just understand them fully, then nothing else in the Bible should surprise us. He's before time, uh, he's always existed, and he created everything. And we're going to learn about that in the most wonderful way in the, in the weeks ahead. Exodus, the book of Exodus is really exciting. It, Exodus is God's power and redemption. Abraham Lincoln wrote the, what we call the Emancipation Declaration, the freeing of black people from slavery. Exodus is God's emancipation declaration for the people of Israel, the Jews, their freedom from slavery in Egypt, plus it's a picture of our emancipation declaration from the power of sin through the blood or the death of Jesus on the cross. The book of Leviticus. Now, I know (coughs) that when you read through the Bible, those of you that do that regularly, we all should do it, it's not everybody's favorite book. I was uh, debating on the campus of New College quite a number of years ago, uh, had a debate with uh, some students and even one of the professors there about the Bible, is it true and how can we believe it and all that kind of thing. And uh, it was kind of a contentious debate, I like that kind of thing. And uh, I had Justin Holcomb with me and some of you know Justin Holcomb, he was a lot younger then but he, he's one of the smartest people I've ever known. But he was just with me, and I was doing the debate. And uh, what happened was uh, one of the uh, students, who was pretty loud-voiced, we'll say, said at one point, he got everybody's attention, he said, wait a minute, wait a minute, this is, everything that this guy's saying is just ridiculous, he said. For instance, the book of Leviticus, Who?" ever went to a church meeting and heard somebody do some kind of a talk on the book of Leviticus. And Justin was right beside me, and he said, oh, just a second, hold on, hold on. You all know we're from Calvary Chapel, Sarasota, and I go there, that's where I go to church, and this is my pastor, and if you'll come on Wednesday night, right now he's teaching through the book of Leviticus, so there's where you can come. And it was really kind of, it was amazing because everybody got really quiet. They didn't know what to say. (laughs) And I just thought, boy, that's a God thing. It was just at that time. Leviticus is all about God's holiness, his holiness. It's a picture of separation and sanctification in a sinful world. And I like teaching the book of Leviticus. I've taught it here more than once. The book of Numbers, God's goodness and judgments, God's caring and justice And the book of Deuteronomy is God's faithfulness, God's loving discipline and purpose. So we'll learn all of that as we go through the Old Testament. Now, some of you might be thinking that these books are really hard to understand, at least some parts of them. And of course, that is true. It is true because we don't know the culture and in some cases, the meaning of Hebrew phrases translated into English. So every Christian must become a student of the New Testament and the Old Testament, the Greek scriptures and the Hebrew scriptures. Nevertheless, Jesus made the importance of the Old Testament very clear. He said in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, do not think that I have come uh, to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them. No, I've come to fulfill them. For truly I tell you that until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear uh, from the law. And anyone who sets aside one of the, uh, any part of the Hebrew Scriptures, Jesus says, and, and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But those who practice and teach the Hebrew Scriptures... Uh, then they, uh, and, and their commands and teachings, uh, then uh, they will be called uh, great in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying that we better know the Old Testament. It's all about God. And it teaches us who God is and, and what God is like and what he demands of us. And, and he teaches, it teaches us how to be the kind of Christians that we need to be. So someone may be thinking, so how do I learn to understand the Bible? How do I really learn to understand the Bible? Well, first, I've preached through most every verse of the Bible. So you can go online to listen to me or any other, there are many other preachers you can find on YouTube especially who have done exactly the same thing. But you should, no, you must purchase a study Bible if you don't have one It doesn't matter which study Bible, the NIV study Bible, the ESV study Bible, the New Living Translation study Bible. There's all kinds of great study Bibles. You need to read through the Bible in a study Bible, which will help you greatly in understanding any scripture. But even better than that, even better than that, purchase the cheapest Logos Bible program that there is. You can just go to logos.org. Uh, on the, or .com, I don't know, Logos Bible Program, just uh, on the internet, and uh, get the, the, the beginner's package. And that would be an investment, and you'll, you'll build on it. That would be an investment that would change your life forever. We've got all these incredible resources, so there's no reason why any of us cannot become really expert over time in what the Bible has to say. Now it has been said, and I agree, that the more we understand the first five books of the Bible, the better we understand the rest of the Bible. It's also important to realize the contrasting bookends between Genesis, the first book, and the Revelation, the last book of the Bible. There's a tremendous contrast. Both books reflect one another. And everything written between the two books are leading to the end of the revelation. Now, I've taught the revelation of Jesus Christ. And by the way, it's not the revelations. That really bothers me when somebody says that. It's the revelation, the revealing of Jesus Christ. Now, I've taught the revelation of Jesus Christ several times here in the church and twice in Russia where they are really interested in that particular book. I've never been asked more questions of any group of people ever than I was there. They they really know a lot about it, and I don't really understand why it's so popular, but it's really popular there. And it was fun to be there and be able to teach it to them. I always like to point out that the revelation in our New Testament is in essence an Old Testament book because without a working knowledge of the old testament one is completely unable to make sense of much of the revelation illustration we just finished the book of daniel and i taught the 70 week prophecy of daniel if you don't know the 70 week prophecy of daniel understand that last week and uh, and the rapture and all of that that comes out of the 70 week study then you will interpret the revelation i think quite wrong. Oh, you'll probably get some good things out of it, but you really need to know the Old Testament to understand the book of Revelation, and that's just one example. So here's an interesting comparison. I've used it a number of times before between Genesis and the Revelation. In Genesis, we see paradise closed. In Revelation, we see the new paradise opened. In Genesis, we see sin's destruction... And in Revelation, we see the result of God's grace over sin. In Genesis, God imposes the curse, and in Revelation, the curse is removed. In Genesis, we see access to the tree of life taken away from Adam and Eve, and in the Revelation, we see access to the tree of life permitted. In Genesis, we see the beginning of sorrow and death. In Revelation, we read, there shall be no more death. Or sorrow, no more tears. In Genesis, we see a garden in a place called Eden, which becomes defiled by sin. And in Revelation, there's a city with no sin in it. In Genesis, we see man's dominion over the earth broken by sin. And in Revelation, it is restored. In Genesis, evil wins, the devil in the guise of a serpent. And in Revelation, we see evil eliminated by the Lamb of God, who took away the sin of the world, and the devil relegated to the lake of fire. In Genesis, Adam and Eve walk with God, but that relationship is broken by sin, by their disobedience. In Revelation, we see that relationship restored. Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look. God's dwelling place is now among the people and he, God, will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with us and be our God. Us and be our God. What is so great about that is it's a return to Genesis in the end the way it was supposed to be. J. Sidwell Baxter has written quite a bit about this and I like this particular quote saying sort of the same thing I just did, but he says it well. The garden in Genesis gives place to the city in the Revelation, and the one man has become the race. In Genesis, we see human sin in its beginnings. In the Revelation, we see it in its full and final developments. In in the harlot... Now, if you know the book of Revelation, you know these what these all mean. The harlot, the false prophet, the beast, and the dragon, that's Satan. In Genesis, we see sin causing physical death on earth. In the Revelation, we see sin issuing in the dread darkness of the second death in the beyond. In Genesis, we have the sentence passed. On Satan, in the revelation, we have the sentence executed. In Genesis, we are given the first promise of a coming Savior and salvation. In the revelation, we see that promise in its final glorious fulfillment. Genesis causes anticipation. The revelation effects realization. Genesis is the foundation stone of the Bible. The revelation is the capstone. So you can see already, can't you, that we need to know the Old Testament to light up the New Testament. We need that. You can't uncouple from the Old Testament and really then have all that you need to know in the Bible. Now it's easy to see the outline of Genesis. Here's the outline of the book. Chapter 1 to 11 has creation which you're going to learn a lot about in a few, uh, the next few weeks. The fall, the promise of redemption, and picture of sin's destruction. In chapter 12 to 50, the second half, we have the story of God's overriding sovereignty in history. So in the first section, 1 to 11, we have four historical markers, the creation... The fall, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. In the second section, chapter 12 to 50, we have four historical figures, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Now, I think it's here that we can most clearly see God's divine, sovereign plan for the ages. Here's just a a quote. It's me that's saying it, but it's important. Nothing can cancel out God's ultimate purpose. No person or event changes God's history. I think that's important for us to really make real in our lives based upon all that's happening in our country and around the world today. Nothing can cancel out God's ultimate purpose. No person, no event changes God's history. In Genesis, we especially see that. I love the story of Joseph, a most dysfunctional family. But Joseph's capture and survival are what caused the Jewish people to ultimately flourish, even through the slavery of Exodus until the cross of Jesus and now the soon return of Jesus. It is in Genesis we first learn that God is sovereign and chooses whoever he wills and uses all historical incidences, such as the Tower of Babel, to direct history to its predetermined end. God called Abram in Genesis 12, and in Genesis 17, God changed his name to Abraham. Uh, The Abraham... Uh, it means the father of many nations, where Abram ma- meant exalted father. So he's now been called by God. He's told that he's going to be the father of many nations. And if there's one story in the Bible in the Old Testament you must know really well, it's Genesis 12 to 17, especially Genesis 12. You should know that chapter thoroughly. And 17, and just try to imagine this man, because by the time we get there, we'll know Moses... Uh, we'll, we'll know uh, Abram and then Abraham really well. And Abraham's now told as an older man, much older man, uh, that his new name from God, in other words, his purpose in life, is to be the father of many nations, not many families, but many nations full of families. Amazing, even think about. It. So we must understand these chapters intimately. In reading the story, we see the combination of obedience and disobedience. Nevertheless, God's predetermined purpose is not thwarted, and Abraham, even in his sinfulness, fulfills God's purposes while exercising his own will, both appropriately and inappropriately. We'll be able to talk a lot about our will and God's will in the middle of that when we come to those stories. Now, Isaac is called by a supernatural birth. His parents were 100, dad, and mom was 90, so don't give up. (laughs) Abraham, 100 years old, Sarah, 90 years old. Uh, Jacob is called by God from the womb. Now Jacob means deceiver, that's his name, he's the deceiver. And uh, Jacob is called by God from the womb, and even though he deceives Esau, his brother, God still cares for him and raises him up above Esau. But Joseph is the most spectacular. God is with him through his selfish teen years and the attempt on his life by his brothers. He's in prison for something he did not do and then becomes the most important person in the world other than Pharaoh. The doctrine of God's sovereignty is the most comforting of all doctrines. We learn that we have a will that can be exercised for good or bad, but our God is still able to deal with our weaknesses and turn all that is meant for evil to our eternal good and His glory. That's the theme of Joseph's story. I watched a video for more than the first time, again recently, by Dr. David Jeremiah on Romans 8.28. And uh, uh, he says in the beginning of his introduction, you can go to YouTube and just put in Romans 8.28, Dr. David Jeremiah, and you'll find it. It's an incredible sermon. And he says Romans 8.28 has been called the greatest verse and the greatest chapter and the greatest book in all of Scripture. The greatest verse and the greatest chapter and the greatest book in all of Scripture. And I agree with him. But Joseph's story... In the Old Testament, in Genesis, is a clear picture of Romans 8.28. It pictures it perfectly. Now, Romans 8.28, most of us have it memorized. And we know, the Apostle Paul writes, we know this, that in all things, no exceptions, God works for the good of those who love God. Him. Now, this is an important thing to think about. Jeremiah makes a big deal of it, and I, I want to also. Uh, how do you describe a Christian? What's uh, uh, the fewest words to describe a Christian? A Christian is someone who loves God. That's what a Christian is. But there's more to it than that, because then it goes on to say that he works for the good of those who love him, that's us who are Christians, who have been called according to God's purpose. And so we know that in our lives, it doesn't make any difference what happens, doesn't make any difference what mistakes you make, what stumbles you have. God works everything that happens in your life and around your life uh, out for your good and his glory. So think of Romans 8, 28, as you listen to Joseph's response to the fear his murderous brothers have of him thinking he might have them punished for trying to kill him. Now, what had happened, there was a famine in the land. They don't know where he is, even if Joseph's still alive. They have to come to Egypt to get food because Joseph had arranged all that. They didn't recognize him, and at first he, at first he didn't tell them who he was, but eventually he did tell them who he was, and it terrified them. And in Genesis chapter 50, we have Romans 8:28. Here it is. In Genesis 50, starting at verse 18, it tells us this. His brothers, Joseph's brothers, then came and threw themselves down before Joseph. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. I'm not God. I mean, am I in the place of God? You intended, you intended to harm me. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I'll provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. That's Romans 8.28. Paul the Apostle tells us that the Old Testament Scriptures are important for us to know. Uh, There's more than one place I could turn to, but Romans 15, 4 is the best. For everything that was written in the past, Paul says, he's talking about the Torah, the Pentateuch, all the prophets, all of those. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. I won't go into it in any more detail than just to say this. I won't. Uh, this morning, I was having a really unusually good quiet time with the Lord, and I asked Him to speak to me on a certain subject that I was really concerned about how to handle. And uh, within five minutes, through I won't take too long to tell you all the details, but I was led to the Book of Isaiah, chapter six, and uh, what. I believe God had me read just, it changed my whole day. It just changed my whole day. That's the Old Testament. It was so relevant to all that's happening today. That's why we need to know all of Scripture. So here is my review of the whole Bible. The Bible is made up of 66 books. uh, 39 Old Testament books and 27 New Testament books. The theme of the Bible from the beginning is that humankind is sinful and in need of a savior. It never deviates from that theme. If someone were to write a book today saying that all Americans are bad and should feel bad about being bad, it's doubtful it would be a bestseller. Actually, there was a book like that. I really enjoyed it years ago back in the 1970s. And the book was called, Whatever Became of Sin, by Dr. Carl Menninger, not a Christian. He's a prominent psychiatrist in the 1970s. And the book was bestseller. I mean, it made, it made waves, to say the least. Basically, the idea behind the book is we need to have some personal responsibility and realize there really is a right and wrong. We need something like that today. Today, we would say that every, everyone should feel good about themselves and be happy. That is largely the preaching of, sadly, the fast-growing health and wealth gospel headlined by book titles such as Your Best Life Now. can't remember who wrote it. (laughs) But proceeding with the description of our Bibles. The first five books, as we have said, are the Pentateuch, and the next 12 books, Joshua to Esther, are all historical books. Great stories, though. And then we have several experiential books, like Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon. And then the next 17 books after those are prophetic books divided into the major and minor prophets. I hope most of you understand why, but major prophets are major only because of the size. Doesn't mean that they're better than the minor prophets, it's just they wrote more. The minor are called the minor prophets because literally the books are smaller, but they enhance and agree with the awesome pictures in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and we've just studied Daniel. Again, the theme of the sinfulness of mankind and the coming of a Messiah is constant throughout those books, even though they were written over 1,200 years by dozens of authors who never met each other. If we add in the New Testament, then the time represented is 2,500 years. Again, from uh, uh, Baxter, he wrote this. Think of it. Over 30 writers contributed to the Old Testament, spaced out over 1,200 years, writing in different places to different parties for different purposes, and little dreaming that their writings, besides being preserved through generations, were eventually to be compiled into that systematic plurality in unity which we now find in the Old Testament. When one reflects on this, surely one cannot be charged with fancifulness for thinking that behind the human writers there must have been a controlling divine design. Now, there's much more I could say about Genesis, but I'll end with two things, the flood and the fall, the flood. This incident is recorded in Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9. And yes, I believe the Bible teaches this is a universal flood. And then we have the fall, Adam and Eve and and the commandment. We have a snake representing Satan. It didn't crawl on its belly at that time, but it does soon after. Uh, Twisted the scripture. Now, we all know what happened here, I'm sure. I mean, Adam was told by God to show the incredible graciousness of God. He says, here's a whole bunch of trees, more than you can probably even count. And everything on them is good, and you can eat from every single one of them. Just, just, you'll have trouble even deciding, except for one tree. And if you eat from that one, you'll die. And then Eve comes along. Adam clearly told Eve the same thing. So there's, uh, there's uh, it, it just, even as I think about it, it proves their sinfulness. <laughs> because if I were to say that there's a door closed over here and I don't want anybody to look into that door. Please don't look. at There's no lock on it, but don't look into that door. What's in there is a secret. Uh, and then we put a camera someplace, a hidden camera. Uh, be, it'd probably take an hour or so, but somebody would look in. <laughs> and uh, uh, Eve then met Satan through the snake. And of course, he twisted scripture. What he said is, you know, did God really say, "No, oh, surely you won't die"? Come on, he was doing all—he was doing all he could to make her jealous. I guess, like, who's God think he is, keeping you from this tree? She never says at any point. At any point, she never says that uh, uh, that God said you couldn't do this. She, she just listened to him, and uh, her answers were pretty, pretty bad. And then she took it and gave some to Adam. And uh, Adam was there, and he didn't protect his wife. He didn't even try to stop her. And he also took the fruit. That's why the Bible says that sin came through one man, Adam. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all have sinned. We're all born a sinner, every one of us, and we all need salvation. And God made provision for that right there in Genesis. The first presentation of the gospel is in Genesis. The theological phrase for Genesis 3.15 is is called the Proto-Evangelium, or the first glimpse of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's in Genesis 3.15. And in Genesis uh, 3.15, it says God speaking to Satan, and it says to Satan, God says, I will put enmity, hostility between you and the woman, meaning the seed of the woman, and between your offspring or your seed and hers. So he's saying there's going to be a problem between a child that's going to come out from the woman and, uh, uh, and that child, we know who the child is, is uh, going to be a problem to uh, all of the people that you influence. And so here's how it goes. I will put enmity, hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring or your seed and hers. And then he, and by the way, this is important, that's masculine singular. I put it in there so you'd see it. So this man, the he is a man, a man will crush your head. That's a fatal blow. And you will strike or bruise, a lot of Bibles say, and that's a good translation, His heel, a crippling blow. And in Romans chapter 16, verse 20, it says the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. So we see a picture of the gospel in Genesis in the third chapter of the Bible. How could we decouple from all that? And then we see how that's worked out as we go through uh, the Bible. So here is why I want us to be literate regarding the whole Bible. I want us to be literate uh, regarding the whole Bible. Um, I'm going to read a section of a book by Dr. David (laughs) Jeremiah. Put it up there, David Jeremiah, the book. Where are we here? How come it's not coming up? Huh? Oh, you got it. Okay. 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 It's, it's coming. I can see it. It's coming any moment. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, Okay, well, I'll just tell you. The, the name of the book is What to Do When You Don't Know What to Do. That's the name of the book. By Dr. Jeremiah. He wrote it about, oh, no, I don't know, eight years ago. And I've been reading it lately. It's really good. What to Do When You Don't Know What to Do. It's largely uh, about the book of James. And uh, at the beginning of the chapter, the chapter is called what to do uh, when the, um... oh, there it is, what to do when you don't know what to do. Okay, good, thank you. And uh, uh, the opening line here is from James chapter 119 to 27. It reads, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So listen to this. A New England teacher quizzed a group of college-bound high school juniors and seniors on the Bible. The quiz preceded the Bible being the subject of a literature class that he planned to teach at what was generally considered one of the better public schools in the nation. Among the more unusual answers from these students were Sodom and Gomorrah, were lovers. And Jezebel was Ahab's donkey. Other students thought that the four horsemen appeared on the Acropolis, that the New Testament Gospels were written by Matthew, Mark, Luther, and John, that Eve was created from an apple, and that Jesus was baptized by Moses. The answer that took the misinformation prize was given by a fellow who was academically in the top 5% of his class. The question was, Golgotha. What's Golgotha? The answer, Golgotha, was the name of the giant who slew the apostle David. (laughs) This was not just an isolated case of biblical illiteracy. In 2014, researchers Uh, Ed Stetzer, who's really well-known in evangelical circles, really good man, uh, reported that even though the average American owns three Bibles, our nation is reading the Bible less often. This is back in 2014 and understanding the material to an even lesser degree. The illiteracy trend has been getting worse for some time now as reflected in a famous Gallup survey from the 1990s, 82% of Americans believe that the Bible is either the literal or inspired Word of God. More than half said they read the Bible at least monthly, yet half couldn't name even one of the four Gospels, and fewer than half knew who delivered, didn't know who delivered the Sermon on the Mount. The Bible is available in more than 1,800 languages. And it's the best-selling book of all time. And yet someone has observed that the worst dust storm in history would happen if all church members who were neglecting their Bibles dusted them off simultaneously. (laughs) (laughs) I hope that's not true with any of us. But it's very, very important that we... Know our Bibles. But there's some good news. At Publix, I was at Publix the other day, and Valerie and I were going through the checkout. And uh, as we were going through the checkout, there was this young man who seemed to be pretty cheerful, young black guy. It doesn't matter whether he was just a young black guy named Matthew. It was written right on. And I said, Matthew. And he looked at me and said, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He said, uh, Acts and Romans. I know all the books of the Bible. And I said, "Wow!" And then he said, "Do you know what the word Matthew means?" And I'm thinking, oh, no, "I can't." Remember. <laughs> he said, "You need to look it up. It's very good." So I looked it up for the sermon, <laughs> and I'm, go- I'm looking forward to going back and finding him. Uh, Matthew means a gift of God or a gift of Yahweh. And I was so encouraged by that young man. He was working so well, and he was so cheerful. And and he just came right back just like that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, Romans. He says, I know all the books of the Bible. And uh, I thought, now that was very encouraging. So here's my final exhortation before we do a little bit more worship. Um, Read the whole Bible. You must do it. If you've never done it before, start. Don't put yourself under a great amount of pressure. I've got to read it in a certain amount of time. You can, there's, you can buy. The best thing to do if you've never read through the Bible is just get one of those one-a-day Bibles. You can buy them online. Uh, they're not very expensive. You can get any, uh, any translation you can imagine. And every day, take you about 20 minutes. Would that be about right? Have 20 minutes. Valerie's been reading them for years. And uh, you'll read something from the Old Testament, something from the New Testament, something from Psalms, and something from Proverbs over a period of a year. And that's, you you don't, don't try to race through. There are some people, you may have time and you take an hour every day, but mostly you'll give up if you try to do it that way. But if you've never read through the Old Testament, you must, but read through the whole Bible and that's a really good way to read through the whole Bible. And then remember that the Bible is a spiritual book only understood by those who are born again of the Spirit of God. So ask God to reveal the truths of Scripture while studying diligently to find and obey those truths. And like my experience this morning with God giving me something that was just so special for me, He'll give you lots of things that are special for you too. So let's pray as Pascal comes back up again. Father, I just thank you for the adventure over this next five weeks. I can hardly wait to start hearing from such a learned individual about what your creation is really all about. Father, I've read so much, but I never get tired of hearing more and more about it, and it just amazes me. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. Wow. And, Father, I just uh, ask that you will use this next five weeks to really just cause us to be really thirsty to know uh, the Word of God in detail and help us as we move together through these books and then on our Sunday morning through the writings of Paul. In Jesus' name, amen.